1: Zhang are welcome to another fun Flip My Funnel podcast takeover series. So I'm always excited when we can have somebody run a full series, and this time it's epic takes mixtapes from the Customer Experience podcast run by Ethan. Uh, Ethan is uh, is the chief evangelist at BombBomb, and he's been doing some ridiculously amazing conversations on the idea of customer experience, and he's he's introducing this series around. A mixtape. So, Ethan, welcome and thank you for doing this, man. Sure. Thank you so much. I think it's
2: so cool that you open this up. It's a true community spirit and mindset that you open the show up to uh, to guest takes like this. And I, it's a privilege to be here.
1: All right. So, introduce what this series really is all about as people will jump into this every other Tuesday or Thursday as the series unfolds.
2: Awesome. Yeah. So, I was coming up on episode 100 of the Customer Experience Podcast. I'm bringing together Typically sales, marketing and customer success to talk about how we can be more intentional and aligned in creating and delivering better experiences for customers. But I wanted to do something special because, you know, it's episode 100. So I went back and found some of the best passages that were transcendent of day to day operations that were transcendent of marketing, of sales, of CS. You know, that these conversations are packed with useful insights, but these individual takes that I chose came from moments where they just transcended it and they're very uh, human-centered, human-focused. I think that's been a consistent theme on the show. So I really devoted that episode and now this series to sharing that. So we're going to hear from some really great guests like, and I think most people listening to the show know David Cancel from Drift, Joey Coleman, author of Never Lose a Customer Again, the director of Runner Experience at Brooks Running, Rachel Ostrander. You are in this series, by the way. You've been on the show twice. One of my friends and co-founders at BombBomb, Darren Dawson, Matt Sweezy from Salesforce, who I know you know, and wrote an amazing book called The Context Marketing Revolution. So that's the series. I'm really excited about it. And it's just a privilege to learn and share so many good insights from so many smart and kind people such as yourself.
1: Well, I'm lucky to be in this. So Ethan, without further ado, let's jump into it as you introduce each and every guest for this entire series. And again, Thank you so much for doing this.
2: Asking how can we make our marketing better is the wrong question. Instead, we need to ask why isn't our marketing working? When you ask why you get much different answers and that question and those answers are at the heart of the work being done by today's guest. He's been at Salesforce for seven and a half years, initially as an evangelist and presently As principal of Marketing Insights, he's the author of Marketing Automation for Dummies and The Context Marketing Revolution, a new book that I've already pre-ordered. I'm really looking forward to. He's the producer and host of the Electronic Propaganda Society, a smart, valuable, and even fun podcast series that rightfully earned a stack of awards. He's a contributing writer for sites like Forbes, Marketing Profs, and Convince and Convert. He's a frequent keynote speaker who I finally saw speak and finally met in person at Dreamforce recently, and. He's the co-founder of a brewery. Matthew Sweezy, welcome to the Customer Experience Podcast.
0: Thanks, Ethan, for having me.
2: Yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. Before we get going, just tell me a little bit about Eventide Brewing in Atlanta. How'd that come together? What's that look like?
0: Uh, it's, a, it's a craft brewery uh, that me and a few other friends started. Um, I, we, just had our, we just celebrated our sixth anniversary at the beginning of this month. And yeah, so I mean, it's just kind of tagline is great. Doesn't have to be complicated. Just a few friends making good beers, and we sell all across the state of Georgia.
2: Awesome! I will look for it when I get down to Georgia, which I'm planning to do this summer. It's a separate story. Um, uh, let's start where we always start on the podcast, and I you have such a unique perspective on it, no well researched perspective. But we'll start the way I always ask it, which is your thoughts or characteristics or your definition of customer experience.
0: Yes, there's two ways to answer that question. One is, it's not up for me to define. It's up for each of our customers to define in their own way. Um, and I think that's actually what the definition is. It's what does someone perceive that they want the experience to be? And I think we understand that. And then the flip side is then how do we, as a brand, fulfill that? And, and to me, the experience is always the sum of all parts. Right? It's not one thing. It's the sum of everything that we do. Um, and we can use the term across the customer journey, but it's inclusive of marketing. It's inclusive of product experience, product use, support, service. So to me, I would put a capital T and a capital E on the experience and assume that it's the sum of all things that we do.
2: Love it. it. It touches on so many themes that people share, but you capture it in really concise fashion there. And you talked about the entire customer life cycle there. And some of the research that you've done with some folks at Salesforce shows that high-performing marketing organizations are 17 times better at collaborating across other departments, like you mentioned, sales, service, product, etc., Talk yeah. a little bit about that research and some of the tips that come out of it. For folks who are listening, how can we collaborate better? Whether you're a marketer or not, the collaboration goes both ways. So give, some, give a little bit more context there and maybe some tips for people.
0: Yeah, so the research. Uh, so every year at Salesforce, we do a state of marketing. And over the past five years, the focus of that effort has really been to identify the key traits between high-performing marketing organizations and everyone else. And just so everyone's clear these high performers are radically outperforming. They're 10 times more likely to be significantly beating their direct competition. And then we start looking at what are those factors, like how are they actually able to do that? And as you notice, one of the larger factors is this idea of collaboration. So the number one key trait of all high performers is executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing. That's very much in line with the definition of the experience that we just talked about. In fact, that new definition of marketing is that marketing is the owner and sustainer of all experiences, not just the creator of messages. Right. So once that becomes the foundation, then we start tactically looking at what high performers are doing. And it takes collaboration because as we talked about experience with a capital T, capital E is across all touch points. And only when you have collaboration can those things then be consistent and holistic uh, and then create the experience that is required. And uh, When you look at very specific use cases of saying, all right, and some of these things are baffling, like it's not a radical idea, right? It's not like, oh, I never thought of that. It's like, duh, right? It's one of those kind of concepts. But then when we look at the actual tactical execution of how well an organization is able to execute, I mean, basic concepts of collaboration, like take a simple example let's not market the people who are in the support queue. Pretty simple. But what you might be surprised is only one third of all businesses can actually do that. And it's because the way that we've currently been structured is marketing is a department that sits outside sales is its own department, support service product. They're all silo departments operating for their own goals. And I was talking to a company the other day and they said, yeah, I tried to go over and talk to support and said, can I get a list of all the people that are in the support queue? So, I can suppress them from this outcoming marketing email. And the answer that the support team gave them was no, that's my data. You can't have it. Right. So, when we face it, and that's not the only company, a lot of us face these problems. So, to overcome these, it's a couple of things. One is your executives have to understand that the highest economic output that you can produce is the experience. Right. 84% of consumers say the experience is just as important as the product or service. It is a new product that we are selling. And, and one might say it's the greater of the products because it is everything and it touches all things. Whereas product usage is only a small sliver of the total time. So those are some basic concepts and ideas, but it, you know, just the idea of experience that's to go through it. and that's what high performers are doing. They have the executive buy-in and that, that allows them to have that collaboration.
2: Yeah. I mean, you really get to the, the, one of the main reasons I started this podcast was out of, uh, partly out of my own interest in this. It's like, we all get it. It's super important. Product parity is through the roof. Hyper competition. The experience is more important than ever. And to your observation, probably the most important thing. And yet when it comes to executing it's really difficult because even in a healthy culture we can start to feel siloed so i love that you go to executive buy in there um i'll just one more follow up on that talk about the consequences like let's assume that a company's executive team is bought in on this idea that capital t capital e v experience is the most important thing talk about the effect on like the relationship between CMO, CRO, and CXO, Chief Experience Officer. I know that you've uh, read and spoken a bit on that. Like, What are you seeing around yeah. these, these titles and, and the relationships between, between these people?
0: Oh, yeah, acronyms. Um, you left one off, too. That was CGO, Chief Growth Officer. So really, you know, when we, when we start to talk about the, tactile, the tactical execution of these ideas, and when you start to say, if marketing in its old format is no longer what we are now doing, then the old executive no longer is appropriate, right? And so the CMO being the old executive. And actually, you know, it's interesting. If, if you've not been in the marketing field for a while, you might not know that CMO was a pretty new term. I um, mean, it came out as, as digital came out, right? When digital marketing came out, that's really when CMO comes out in the forefront. Before that, it was VP of sales and marketing for most B2B organizations, uh, VP of marketing for other organizations. Now that we move forward, right, and CMO took on the roles of digital branding, advertising, all those different aspects, email direct, um, now we start to say to the experience, right? And so there's two ways to look at experience. One is you can say, we are going to focus on experience. And that is just a term. The other flip side of the same coin is to say that we're going to look at growth. So it's either a chief experience officer or a chief growth officer um, that we see as kind of driving a lot of these. We also still have the, the CRO, chief revenue officer, And that also could be looking at growth and just depends on how they use the definition. Um, But really, I see one of those three formats, either chief experience, chief growth, or chief revenue officer, really being the future leader of the marketing organization because they're focused on a holistic goal. And that holistic goal is growth by a better experience. And when you say growth, that's the exact same word as revenue. So it doesn't matter if you're CRO, CGO, CXO, um, that really is the future. But that leader, let us be clear on what that leader must do. And that job is to create a connected experience. They must be the one who says, all right, we increase revenue, not by just selling more products, but by creating a better experience across the entire lifecycle. That's just as important for us to create a good service and connect that to marketing and messaging um, just as much as it is to put new people into the pipeline and service them all the way through. So yes, yeah, so I think all three of those are accurate. Um, it doesn't matter which one you choose. It just matters that you have the executive buy-in to be inclusive. And be a bridge builder between all experiences to make sure they're consistent and holistic, uh, and that's the new pathway to growth.
2: Love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a couple of your own quotes and ask you one follow up before we get on to the context marketing revolution, new book, sure. Harvard, Harvard Business Press, right? Yep. I I might ask about that relationship too, because that's. Cool publisher. But, uh, but before yeah. we do, um, just a couple of quotes of yours. Marketing creates experiences, not messages. Your brand isn't what you say. It's the sum of all experiences you create, right? I think you've already touched on some mm-hmm. of these themes already, but talk about just because there's been a background thing as I've been talking with a variety of people in a variety of seats in, in a conversation like the one we're having now. Talk about your view of brand experience and customer experience. Are they synonymous or is it just semantic and you don't even care? It's not interesting to you.
0: I'm more on the second of it's just semantics um, because what is brand? Well, brand is the sum of all experiences, right? And if that's what we define as brand, right? So, I mean, it, and then how you tactically execute those could be different things, right? Is the tactical execution is the goal of the marketing to drive an engagement and move the person forward into a customer journey. That's much going to be much more of a customer experience marketing initiative. Whereas what if the goal is just to make sure people are aware of us, know who we are, that's much more of a traditional brand, i.e. just becoming aware of who we are and what our mission and what our ideas are. So to me, they're, they're both the exact same thing, because I believe brand is the sum of all experiences that you, that you create. And the reason I say that is because you can tell the world all the messages. You, you can say, this is who we are. You can put all the pretty pictures up. You can just have the best copy and best advertising in the world that's branding. But as soon as they interact with you in any way, shape or form, if that's not consistent with the message or the projection or the expectation that you've set, then you you don't have a brand, right? Because the sum is they found something radically different and now they feel lied to. Hence, you now have a very bad brand. So to me, it's, it's the, latter, the sum of all experiences and they're really the same thing to me. Yep.
2: Good. And it's not just... Um... It's not just that it can go terribly bad. I mean, did that disconnect just plain create confusion, not even... Ooh, which of course is a negative sentiment as well. So the context marketing revolution, how to motivate buyers in the age of infinite media, full title of the book uh, that is, you know, this will mm-hmm. be released, I think a little bit before the book Large. is released. Yeah. This episode will be a little bit uh, before it. Before we get into some of the themes and topics, when did you know that this was a book that you wanted to write? Like, why did you... Cause you're, you know, you're studying these things, you're talking about them, you're teaching them, et cetera. Like, when did you say, I need to round this up and put it in a book?
0: Uh, yeah. So (laughs) I don't know when that was, I think it probably came down to when I was doing the research and just, so I'm always constantly researching topics and researching things. And one of the things I was trying to research was what is the cost of marketing going to be in the future? And when I started to look at that, that required me to say, all right, if, what is the cost to break through the noise? And then that one more step was we now need to start measuring the noise. So I started measuring noise from 1900 all the way through and projected to 2030 as best as I could. And then what I started to find out was how we started to think about these things and the environments that marketing is taking place in are radically different from a fundamental level, um, from a media theory level. And so once I started to realize that and realize that the iterations that we continue to iterate upon... Were specific games that were created for a specific environment, and that no longer is true. Um, that's really when I decided that, all right, this is this is big. We need to really think about this and focus on this. Um, because this is not an iteration on old marketing ideas, right? Iterating on old ideas will not carry us forward into the future. Back to the the quote you opened up with. If we ask, how do we be better? We simply take the ideas and foundations and iterate upon them. Well, if the foundational ideas are no longer correct, We're iterating upon something and creating something bad. So we have to question those foundations. And I think when I realized and did the research on noise and found that we entered a new media environment, that that's really when I decided that, hey, this is important. We should talk about this. Cool.
2: I think since I have not read the book, I think one way to get at it is through the title. And we're right on the doorstep of this one. Talk about what you mean by infinite media and what are its consequences, because that really is the crux of a lot of this.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, so infinite media. So if we follow media theory, which is really kind of spearheaded by Marshall McLuhan, um, Harold Ennis, uh, Neil Postman, it's essentially a theory that says human behavior is dictated by the media environment that surround them, right? And when we think about media environment, it's it's not Twitter, social media, it's, it's something much greater, you know, just like the basic concepts of how the printing press took the world out of the dark ages and into the age of enlightenment. So infinite media is in contrast to limited media. And before 2009, based on my mathematics, that was the limited media environment. And that meant three specific things. Media was limited in terms of creation, in terms of distribution, in terms of total consumption. So when those three things are limited, that's a very specific environment. And we play a very specific game within that environment. Right. And if you look at who had access, you know, to overcome any one of those barriers, it required capital. So predominantly noise was created by businesses. Um, it was a monopoly. And then what, after 2009, what we find is that the individuals creating their own media, right, on social media, on email, um, as well as their devices, they now are the largest creators of noise since noise is very different. And also it follows a very different pattern where they continue to create more and more and more and for more players. So we see an infinite level of noise rising, right? There's no barriers to creation. There's no barriers to distribution. And there's an infinite amount of content available for for access. What this really means is that consumers now operate in a different world and they have different decision-making tools and they have different decision-making processes. So the way that marketing was originally crafted was to say, we are here to motivate individuals, given a specific set of circumstances of how they make decisions. What I'm arguing for is saying, all right, consumers now have a radically different decision-making process. And the role of marketing now is radically different, which much, must much, much match that process based on the environment. So long and short, infinite media means that now consumers are in control. And how we motivate them is not by grand copy or single advertising campaigns where we, we said something so creative, we got them to take action. Rather, we must understand that these things now take place across a long series. Everything is a journey and motivation is done by guiding individuals by step by step across that journey, not by trying to get them to to skip steps. This is pretty much the basis.
2: Yep. It makes perfect sense. And that's, uh, just to tie it back for people that, that haven't tied it back in their own heads already. That is why this iterative approach is how do we make it better does not apply, uh, because it, we're just building on old blocks. It's funny. I remember reading a, um, a book. It's called scientific advertising. It was like a, either a thin book or just a really amazing pamphlet, uh, that's Decades and decades old, and it's basically so much. When I think about a lot of digital advertising right now and the iterative approach, you know, we can we can do A/B tests faster, but essentially it's the same thing this guy was writing about in direct mail and magazine ads, decades and decades and decades ago. So you know, we feel like we're so well equipped, and the pace of things is fast, but still, uh, it's an iterative approach nonetheless. Uh, Let's go to the front side of the title of the book: the Context Marketing Revolution. I think revolution is already baked in. I think it anyone that's listening to what you're talking about and and the consequences of the age of infinite media sees that this is revolutionary. But talk a little bit about context marketing. What is context in this context?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, So context is, once again, it's in contrast to something. It's in contrast to the word attention. So the foundation of marketing in the limited media era was how do we break through, grab someone's attention and get them to do what we want right? That was how we motivated people to action. Now, what we see is we motivate people by context. And that really has a couple of factors. One, saying that with infinite media, we now have an intermediary between brands and individuals. That intermediary is artificial intelligence. Well, AI is only going to let through what is contextual to that individual to the moment. Because that's what generates the highest engagement. And you can see, look at any social feed, look at anything that's mediated by digital, by, by AI... And you will see it's a contextual feed, your Google search results. The results are specific to you in the context of you in that moment, right? You look at social media, that feed is a contextual feed, not a chronological feed. You look at your email inbox, right? And the list goes on and on and on, right? So for number one, for a marketing to break through, it has to be in context of the moment. That's key number one for context. Key number two is that context also means what does it mean to the individual? So we got on this big kick of content marketing, right? All we need to do is create content. But the problem is no individual ever said, damn, I want content today, right? So what they want is they want something that's contextual to help them solve a goal, right? That's really the definition of the tactical execution of context is how do we help the, the individual solve the goal of the moment? And by helping them accomplish that goal, we build the trust we need, right? And it doesn't matter where it is, we break through because we can help them with that moment. Um, we then build the trust we need. And then we're able to leverage that moment to guide them to the next step. And by doing that, we then are able to then generate the demand by guiding people by saying, we're going to take this and keep you going down this path. And then that's kind of the basic concept. So that's really the concept of uh, of context and the contrast to attention.
2: Awesome. Uh, For folks who are listening, normally we would wait to the end of the episode, but I'll just go ahead and say it for you. The Context Marketing Revolution is available for pre-order. You can pre-order on Amazon. That's what I did. Um, You know, If you like these ideas... And I'll transition. There's a a way you can get a preview of a lot of these ideas too in a really cool format. But uh, really quickly, now, did you build a proposal and shop it to different publishers? How'd you get connected with Harvard Business?
0: Yeah. So I wrote uh, an outline, wrote a draft, and then pitched it to a bunch of different publishers. So I had 3 publishers willing to publish it. Then when Harvard's one of them, Harvard Business, who doesn't want, who doesn't dream of being published by Harvard Business? So I was like, sure, let's let's have you guys publish it. Um, That's that's how it happened.
2: Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, For people who like these ideas and uh, are... are in anticipation of the book itself, I want to offer that you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you listen to the Customer Experience podcast and go search Electronic Propaganda Society, award-winning series, incredibly well-produced, unlike this one and so many other podcasts. It's not interview-based. You know, it it lays out all of these theories over uh, and and ideas and research over nine episodes. And so I guess just to open it up on, on the Electronic Propaganda society, what were you trying to deliver in terms of experience? Like why the audio yeah. format and why the style of production maybe?
0: Uh, yeah, a couple of reasons. One, I'm a creator, just like I think most of us are. Uh, and I wanted to create something rad, right? Just pure passion project, no bounds, see how far I can push and see how radically creative I can be with something. And so I've created that format, right? So it's, it's not a traditional podcast. It's not interview-based. It's I based it very much off serial, so it's a nine-series episode that tells a single story, and then it's heavily researched, heavily produced, just because I I wanted to do it that way, um, and I thought that would make a good experience and make a really cool, uh, make something that people would enjoy. You know, it's very different than anything that's out there, hence it's uh, why I won so many creative awards for it uh, when it came out. So I believe I've got five creative awards for it currently. But yeah, that, that was it. And, it. and it's super rad. And it's something like you've never heard before. And that was kind of the point.
2: I agree completely. And um, and it really does tee up all the stuff we've been talking about so far. I love it as a compliment to having seen you present on some of these topics and in, in anticipation of of the forthcoming book. I think there are probably a lot of connections, there obviously are a lot of connections between them. What were some of your inspirations? Like, are you a podcast listener? Or, you know, like, what were some of your inspirations as you are like trying to create something that was awesome for you?
0: So I don't listen to many podcasts. I think I've listened to two. Uh, I think I made it almost all the way through Serial. But I think just, just radical formats of content, right? A great, a great documentary, a great docu-series. And I just figured that it was easier to do via a podcast than any other format. Um, so I did it by the podcast. For inspiration, definitely Serial. I reached out to a friend of mine who's a producer at a W whatever the public radio station is in New York. Um, my brain stopped, but, um, read some books, um, sound reporting that I was written by NPR. So kind of just, you know, audio, how to do those things, but really just listened to podcasts and just would then go listen to top rated podcasts and, and listen to what I believe made them top rated and then just mimic that. Um, so it wasn't like some, you know, crazy thing. And then really the, the theme was, you know, fifties and sixties Soviet era propaganda. And so that was kind of like the underlying artistic theme uh, for this. Hence, you know, the revolution. Um, that kind of was, you know, the the visual format. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You'll know you,
2: you'll know you found the right uh, podcast when you see some of that that era artwork. Uh, it's really the whole theme is really well developed. Obviously, you drew in a ton of. I mean, one of to me, one of the most impressive things from a production standpoint was how much original audio you brought into it, clips and quotes and speeches and the Knight Rider theme song and historical clips and like <laughs> fun edits and stuff. Uh, but you also referenced yeah. several books that I just really love and respect. And I'm just going to name a handful of them. The clue train manifesto you leaned sure. on um, the Experience you- yeah. economy by Pine and Gilmore. They have a new one out recently. Um, the medium is the message from um, McLuhan, who you already referenced permission marketing from Seth Godin, mm-hmm. which was very fundamental to us at bomb bomb as we started getting going. And one of my personal favorite books of all time, small is beautiful by E. E.F. Schumacher. One of mine too. Yeah. How, are you like a prolific reader? Like how, um, and any other, if, if I mentioned those books and uh, people liked a couple of them, you know, uh, what are some other favorites
0: that you've got? Uh, it's, uh, so first off, so I don't know if I consider myself prolific. I, I consider myself a follower of rabbit holes. So when I start going down, when there's a question in my head, I try to then go research and follow that rabbit hole until it's exhausted. And what that really ends up with is me going down very archaic, arcane, archaic, um, like different paths and, and finding random authors, little books or big books um, that, not, that are on that topic. Um, so it's really kind of how I come across all of those. And then in conversation of, hey, I, I read this with a friend. Oh, well, then have you read this? It's very organic how I find them. So I wouldn't consider myself necessarily prolific. I have read a lot just based on, the work I do, and kind of those rabbit holes, and making sure I, and really, I think it comes out of um, the reason I do that is not because I'm a prolific reader. It's more or less because I'm insecure, and I think the insecurity is I never want to be on stage and say something and have someone say that's wrong because you never read this book, and in this book he argues against that point, right? So I wanted to make sure that I had a theoretical foundation that you know I knew. Every, anything that was going to come at me. And I think that was the, the reason I read. So I wouldn't say I'm a prolific reader. I just say I did for those reasons. Um, the second, on, on the other books that people may enjoy, it's such a hard question to answer. And yeah. um, there's so many books that I read from so many different things. And it's like, do you want a historical context? It's like, all right, we talk about feedback loops, but it's like, did you ever really read the original book, which is Robert There's original books by, I don't remember, I can't pronounce the last name. He talked about feedback loops back in the 50s. And that was really the foundational aspect of Intel and all those concepts. And, you know, we talk about experience and, you know, the experience economy, Joseph Pine, Jim Gilmore, um, foundational to that theory. Um, Doc Searles, one of the co-authors of Clue Train Manifesto. has got a bunch of other books. Seth Godin's got a bunch of other books Um, in there. You know, it just depends on how nerdy or how tactical or how practical you want to be with the book recommendation. Um, and there's so many good books out there that it's just so hard. But if I could just take a second to talk about what you said was your favorite and my favorite, which is E.F. Schumacher's smallest Beautiful. So pretty much a theme through the majority of my favorite books is this constant theme of humanity. Uh, E.F. Schumacher talks about, you know, and there's lots of quotes I use. And one is that, you know, industry is, you know, so great, and it, it, but it's so inefficient to a degree that we don't really realize it's inefficiency. Hence, we just let it continue being inefficient, right? But if we start to look at these things and say, all right, if we put humans at the center of everything, right, if we put humans at the center of our business, right, if you put humans at the center of what marketing should be, if we put humans in the center of economics, we see a very different approach. And on that if you haven't read the book, Autos Huxley, The Island, I would say make sure you read Autos Huxley, The Island. It's not a marketing book. It's totally a book about humanity and about, you know, what if we thought about living in a different way? But I think that's the, my favorite theme through all those books is, is just a challenge, and and I just can't I can't say enough about Schumacher's theories of, you know, what if we thought about economics not as the highest financial return, but as the highest stakeholder theory return, which is essentially what he talks about way before stakeholder theory became a thing, um, and that then leads you into purpose-driven business, purpose-driven marketing. I do believe purpose is a massive, powerful force, um, and all of our marketing in the future must have an element of purpose in it. Um, just because it focuses us on conversations past our product. And um, so it allows us to have a more human relationship, a more honest relationship past just the product with our, with our audience, with our marketplace. I don't know if I answered your question. No, man, that, that was, but,
2: that, that was uh, a great, great pass. The subtitle of Smalls, is Economics, As If People Matter, Mattered. And, um, and I love the way you, you captured it and summarized it there. And I agree with you on purpose. I see it more and more often. I think it's you know, one of the big you know, consumer packaged goods, Conglomerates was talking about how they 're going to start folding some of their brands if they can 't identify a an authentic purpose that transcends like paper towels or toothbrushes or whatever else they 're selling you know uh, they 're going to start peeling yes. off some of the brands and you know putting them off to market because purpose matters so much. I think it does i 'm probably abusing the word context here, but I think that purpose gives people some context for their participation with you and your product or your service. And um, I just advocate, and I'm sure you would too, is that, that, that it is sincere is a big deal. I think, you know, when I think about, um, you know, a lot of the sh- shallow surface layer, you know, flimsy purpose stuff that people just staple up over the front of the store or whatever, you know, storefront or whatever uh, as a, as a concept falls away really quickly so it needs to be sincere and authentic to the core of the business. I think it's one of the things for us here at BombBomb. We were very clear on what we were trying to do in the world and the way that we wanted to operate from the beginning. I don't know that it, I don't know that it it came it it has bled through as much to our customers as much as maybe it could should would in the future. But um, I think having it early and having it be clear and shared is a really big deal. Purposes purpose is a thing. We could probably do 20 minutes on purpose, but I'm going to try to let you get back yeah. to your date for just a little bit. I got a couple other topics for you. One of them, you were sure. kind enough to, to uh, review and say some nice things about a book that I co-authored with Steve Passanelli, my good friend and team member here. It's called Rehumanize Your Business. I think it kind it does what you were talking about, which we tried to put the human at the center of, of video in particular. And so I'd just love for you to share your thoughts. And you know, I saw you put up a LinkedIn post recently about... Increased consumption of video projected into the future. Talk a little bit about one to one video, this human to human video, uh, as well as just video in general. Anything you got on video, I'd love to hear
0: it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, posted this morning actually. So, doing my research on my 20 Future of Marketing 2020, I uh, put out a future of every year about marketing. Uh, and one of the big things is, you know, just going out about five years, what we need to be really cognizant of is 5G and more free time. So one of the things is as 5G comes about and as we start to offload more things to IoT, we're going to start to open up more free time. We, we, we've opened for free time every year since you know, digital has become a thing. It's going to come even greater. So I talked about, you know, if we go five to 10 out, and we start to get into the self-driving cars. Well, what what do we then do with two hours of free time every day, right? Well, we're going to consume content. And one of the most consumable pieces of content with 5G will be video. And so we start looking at, you know, how's that going to break down short form, long form, live video. Um, and then you talk about one-to-one so it, you know, one-to-one to me, and I've gotten some flack from this, but to me, one-to-one was an idea of one brand creating one message for one individual. What I think we need to really think about is human-to-human. How do we connect one human to another human and do so at scale? And the definition of personal for me in the future isn't personalized. It's not how personalized, how customized can I make a mass experience to an individual? It's how human can I deliver that? How personal can I deliver that experience? So, you know, if it is one individual creating a video and sending it to another, that is one piece for one individual. That is one human talking to another, um, instantly consumable, instantly engaging. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a new format. It, it is a new format already. And I mean, video is very engaging. We like video. So, you know, yeah, I'm all, all pro on video. I have been for a long time. Um, and I think, you know, as time moves on, we're going to use video more and more just because it's easy, you know?
2: Yeah. I love that you draw the distinction between one to one and human to human or, or, you know, this idea that, yeah, and because it speaks to, and I love that you use the language around person. I, I, the line that I drew, I wrote a blog post maybe two or three years ago about personal versus personalized in the context of video. Mm-hmm. And this idea that to me, personalized is dear first name because you yeah. reach in with yeah, product name. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, variable stuff versus truly personal is, hey, Matt, I just so appreciate your time. You know, in our conversation today, you made me think about this thing that I had read about. I'd read your work on it. i had heard you speak about it, but I think about it completely differently now. Um, I just so value it, right? This this truly personal experience is not a variable data slug. And it's, it's interesting because... You know the other background theme on it is uh, scalable versus unscalable. I think a lot of people look at it and they say, "Oh, this doesn't scale," and then it just begs this. It begs your original question. I right? Like, um, is it better if we can make it slightly, slightly incrementally better by inserting better variables into these things versus can you create a truly personal experience and what is the value of that, especially in the face of all this noise?
0: Yeah. No, and, and I totally agree. And scale is the big thing, and, and that's why. So one of the foundational elements is, is a technological foundation for context marketing, for all marketing in the future. Without technology, there is no way to scale these concepts or ideas, right? With technology, we know exactly who to talk to, what human to connect with them, whether that's an employee, an advocate, um, a salesperson, a marketer. Well, we, we know exactly who to connect, what conversation to have, and, and then how to guide them to the next steps. And it becomes a scalable system, right? Where marketing is no longer, we're sitting in boardrooms, coming up with campaigns to push to the masses. Rather, we create webs of systematic automations and we manage these automations, which are connecting us. Right. And that's making the best use of our time. And I think that's the biggest thing. Is, and, and, you know, we haven't talked about this one word of agile. That's the other aspect of scale, right? So there's a technological aspect of what does it take techno- technically to scale? There's the other of what changes do our processes have to take on? Well, we have to take on new building process. I mean, I, and I think that, you know, this is one of the things I love to talk about is the, the concept of we were all trained on the assembly line. Right. 19, was it, 1912, 1918, Henry Ford comes out with the assembly line. And that's how we think about building. That's how we structure our organizations and silo organizations. We, the building process is the waterfall process or an extrapolation of the assembly line. But now we have instant feedback. And so we must move to a new model, which is agile, which is rapid testing, right? You know, listen to Morgan Brown, uh, Sean Ellis, you know, uh, growth hacking, you know, it's, it's rapid innovation. You know, this is what we're talking about. And so I think that's the other aspect of scale. It's in those two combinations have to happen together. And then these things become possible, right? Then we're not, we're no longer saying, all right, how do we just, you know, create the right message at the right person at the right time? If, it's, it's, you know, how do we connect the right human to have the correct experience, to produce the correct experience in context for that moment? Um, And I think that's where we have to go.
2: I love it. It's, it's, um, just bridging it to the truly personal moments. It's, it's, it's using technology and, and processes to put people to be in their best position, to be of highest value, doing things that machines can't do. And you let the machines do all the things that machines do best. Salesforce. You've been there for quite a while. How do you like you started as an evangelist, your principal of marketing insights, like what is your day to day, week to week, month to month relationship to, you know, the Salesforce mothership? Like, how do you plug in? Are you just a man about the world whose work is supported by Salesforce? Like, What's the working relationship there? It's a cool job. (laughs) You have an Uh, awesome job, by the way.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I actually started out in sales um, for a little startup called Pardot, and I was the second salesperson, Employee 13. Uh, We grew that company up. um, We got acquired by Exact Target, then acquired by Salesforce. I transitioned into the thought leadership role during that process, just because that's the side I really was passionate about. So plugging in, so I really am utilized in a couple of different ways. As a lot of us are utilized, you know, it's, it's customer meetings. It's going in and talking with large brands, talking about what their future looks like, giving a presentation to them. You know, doing customer dinners, helping with research, um, as well as then third-party speaking engagements and evangelizing the brand on stage all across the world, right? So people really see us as, hey, they're not just the technology provider; they're also someone who is at the forefront of the field that they're, you know, selling to, um, so that we can produce, you know, really, you know, far-leading, future-leading thoughts and help guide. Uh, businesses forward, not just by the technology that we create, but also, you know, the theory that they need to utilize um, to, to succeed with.
2: Yeah. I, um, I was in a session at Dreamforce with, uh, a couple researchers who were working on essentially future of work, um, which made me think yeah. about you and like how many of you in mean, different topic areas are there inside an organization like Salesforce?
0: It's hard to count. Um, You know, when you start getting into, like, I have a team, I sit on the market strategy team, so I'm not tied to an actual cloud product. I'm I'm a side separate entity. But then each product has their own evangelists, have their own research, you know, so we have it very distributed across the organization. But on my team, there's probably about 10 of us, Um, each has a different role. Um, So, you know, IoT, future of work, voice of the customer, sales and marketing. Um, You've got a bunch of different ones that have rolled up into that. Uh, And I really focus on the future of marketing.
2: Awesome. Uh, and it shows you're doing a lot of great work around. It. It's really fun and interesting. Last question. Another sure. LinkedIn post of yours. This is just interesting to me and highly consequential. And it seems very relevant to people uh, who maybe haven't noticed, but you noted that Chrome is planning to kill off third-party cookies by 2022. Yeah. What, are, what, what do you think is the motivation and what are the
0: implications? Oh, I mean, the motivation's easy. If they don't do it, there's going to be government regulation that's going to regulate them to do it anyways. So I mean, it's they're just trying to get ahead of the boat, right? So that's why they're doing it, right? Privacy, individual privacy, customer privacy. Third-party cookies really aren't great for individual privacy. And a lot of the people who created the internet believe that they've gone, run, they've, they've run amok, and we've used them to really do the consumer a disservice. So the, pretty much everyone's going away with them. So you know, five years out, we should really be thinking about a post-third-party-cookie world. That doesn't mean post-first and second. It means post-third. So we're gonna have to figure out new ways of. of attribution, new ways of reporting, new ways of tracking, new ways of engagement. But the good news is that as long as you know a lot of those things are just for you know third party advertising, um, programmatic ad buys, retargeting, and then the attribution of those things. So you know we're just going to be a new world. And I think you know that's really when if you double down on context in that notion, right, move past just I can push button and advertise to anybody. so now we need to really focus on how do we connect one human to another human. And do so in first and second party ways. We're really going to build a much stronger, more durable brand with better data that's, you know, regulation proof, right? You know, zero first and second party data is regulation proof. So, you know, we have permission to use that, which once again puts permission at the forefront. You know, when we do ask for permission, we build a different type of trust. We build a deeper trust with our individuals. Um, and it helps us break through. So yeah. So, I, you know, it's a, it's a pro and a con, right? So we're not going to be able to do the same things we used to do, but I think it'll be better for everybody moving forward. Yeah, so good. I,
2: I just had a flash there of how how long ago Seth Godin's permission marketing was written, but how far we have not come in some ways against it. You know, just the spirit of it in general. And so uh, it's interesting yeah. as I as I think about good brands and good product services and experiences. And really, it just a lot of it comes down to being a great human being that other people want to be around. It's like those qualities are the qualities you want to provide such that you, people are attracted to you and they feel good around you and they feel good about themselves. And yeah, it's good. Thanks for that passage. Um, Hey man, this has been awesome. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I, I, um, enjoy you personally. And, uh, before we go, I want to give you the chance, uh, to, to, bring to life one of our core values here at BombBomb, which is relationships. And so uh, I'd like to give you the chance to thank or mention someone who's had a positive impact on your life or career, and to give a nod to a brand or a company that you really appreciate for the experience they provide for you as a customer.
0: All right. Yeah. So first, I'd like to uh, give a shout out to Doc Searles. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, author Clue Train Manifesto. Doc has definitely been very helpful. It's easy to reach out to. has definitely helped guide me, it helped a lot with the book in, in terms of you know just questions. and just someone that's been great. Uh, I love the work that he produces. Um, He's an awesome human, um, and he's definitely helped me out a lot. So shout out to Doc. And then a company I highly respect and I think create a great customer experience for me as well as others is Wistia. They're probably one of my favorites. Um, I've known them personally for going on 10 years. I'll always love the individuals that they hire, uh, the culture that they put together, the marketing that they put out, the software that they create, and the experience just in general of everything that they do. Um, it's very unique, very specific. And it's, it's a great example of how culture and how leadership really does create a culture. And if it's not at the executive level, it's very difficult to create such a positive and unique culture inside an organization if the executives don't have it. Um, so that was, I'll, I'll go with those two.
2: Awesome. And that's a reflection of another kind of background theme on the show, which is that uh, a great employee experience begets or is a necessary precursor to a great customer experience. Uh, And and culture is one of the words that kind of captures some of that essence. We already talked about pre-ordering the Context Marketing Revolution on Amazon. Uh, I mentioned uh, you're someone great to follow on LinkedIn. How else could someone follow up with you and your work? If if people enjoyed this conversation, they like the ideas, they want to go deeper, where would you send people?
0: Uh, Yeah. So I mean, two things. One is make sure you either follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I publish uh, there on a pretty weekly basis. Um, If you haven't listened to the podcast and want to kind of get a jump on what the book talks about it, say make sure you listen to the Electronic Propaganda Society. Uh, And then definitely please pre-order the book. I think you'll enjoy it. And really, the goal is to, to really help marketers... Not necessarily help marketers as much, but help marketers make the case to their executives of why we must change and go down this different path. And that's really the focus of the book is to help you have the firepower to make these changes internally in your organization.
2: Really good because it's big. It's scary it's revolutionary. Uh, and so I think being better informed, better equipped to, to make these arguments and to make these observations internally, and even collaborating across teams and building consensus around some of these ideas. So uh, I, I hope the book delivers on your mission, uh, because I think we'll be enjoying our, our lives and businesses a little bit more uh, when we start moving more in that direction. Thanks so much for your time today, Matt. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, hope you have a great week.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for the chance.